So, I want to talk in a bit more detail about this practice of compassion that we're that we're doing. We could, you know, one de- possible definition for compassion might be something something like uh, the natural response of the heart to suffering when that heart, when the mind, when the consciousness is not preoccupied with self, when it's not kind of uh, contracted around self, what I want, I- including a kind of negative self-view. I'm terrible at this, or whatever it is. So when, when that kind of contraction around self isn't there, the natural response of the heart when it meets suffering will be this, this compassion. That's one, one possible definition. So compassion differs from metta in that it's specific to suffering. Specific to suffering. It's oriented towards suffering. It's a response towards suffering, towards dukkha. And compassion as an energy, it wants to alleviate the suffering, it wants to heal the suffering, it wants to go out and to soothe suffering. Uh, it um, wants to free, wants to free suffering. So uh, we could say, when there's loving-kindness, when there's metta, and that metta meets suffering, uh, it kind of uh, transforms into compassion. So again, all these, all these uh, metta and compassion and equanimity, they're all just words, but the, the words can be really helpful uh, pointers of what to cultivate. But in a way, compassion is a kind of composite. It's, um, it, it involves a lot of different qualities, a lot of different aspects to it. So it certainly includes what we would call empathy, or what, what I'm calling empathy, uh, meaning the kind of resonance of the heart with the suffering that it touches or the, the, we see suffering, we witness suffering in ourselves and others and there's a kind of um, trembling of the heart I think is the Buddha's words so that we, we see sorrow in someone and somehow we also feel sorrow this is, this is uh, to me miraculous quality of the human heart maybe some animals as well, I don't know but uh, that the heart has a capacity to resonate in a very beautiful way with the sorrow that it encounters in the world. So that's a huge part of compassion. Maybe half of compassion is empathy. But compassion also has this very active aspect. It wants to give, as I say, it wants to heal and soothe, it wants to do something. So it involves giving. But uh, it also involves, it needs to have equanimity in it. It needs to have wisdom in it. It uh, has a basis of kindness, and has kindness in it, the metta is in it. It needs to have acceptance in it. Uh, compassion often has humor in it. You know, it's not this very heavy, dry thing. Uh, it has listening in it. Holding, it wants to hold suffering sometimes. There's a quality of opening in it. It also has a quality of joy. Joy is... Uh, uh, running through compassion. That's quite important. So, all, uh, compassion is all of that, you know, and probably more. And again, like metta, it's not just a feeling. It's not just a feeling. So certainly the feeling aspect of compassion is important, but it's a whole lot more. It's a whole lot more than that. 
And so it's interesting, you know, we all kind of signed up for this retreat, love, love, love and kindness and compassion. Uh, and yet I, I still feel that most, most human beings have a somewhat ambivalent relationship with compassion. Uh, despite our, uh, everyone here certainly, uh, the spiritual aspiration to cultivate compassion, to want to deepen the heart that way and open the heart that way. There's still maybe a part of us that kind of is a little bit wary and maybe a little bit scared of it, as if it's, uh, we can tend to think of it or feel it as a burden. I've already got so much stuff going on here, now, 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 you know, now they're asking me to open to the suffering in the world. Or um, I've got so much going on just trying to deal with my own stuff, now I have to somehow feel burdened by, by the rest of humanity and beings. But I think when, you know, as we, as we grow on, on the spiritual path, really see that uh, it's not a burden. It's not, uh, we're not opening ourselves up to more suffering, actually. We're not taking on more suffering through compassion. Rather, if the heart uh, closes or remains closed to compassion, that's a burden. That's suffering. That heart will be uh, small and and dry and preoccupied with self and uh, there's suffering in that and there will be a burden to that. So there, there is though, I mean, this is a human thing, we are ambivalent often about compassion. So we have this kind of um, unsureness about it, uncertainty about it, about it, fear of it. And we also have this yearning for it, very, very um, deep in the heart it's, it's a sense that this is something uh, that really is profoundly fulfilling to the heart the heart's moving out in compassion, opening uh, to compassion, opening to the suffering of others is something almost without which a, a, a life cannot be fulfilled and so deep, deeply we yearn for, yearn for it because of the connection that it uh, sustains, that it opens for, with ourselves. Our own heart is deeply connected with its own depths and the connection, of course, with others. Uh, and you may also have, be having a sense, you know, at times there's a real sweetness even in the compassion. It's a very sweet quality. Uh, it can be, it should be, an energizing quality, something of it that's actually uh, sustaining, bright. It should also be, and this may or may not be the case more or less, but it should also be a pleasant quality. It's something uh, that the heart can settle into and actually enjoy compassion. Not, not a burden, not something to be scared of. The warmth of it, the beauty of it. And again, going way back to, I think, what something I said in the op opening talk, that uh, these are Compassion is an ennobling quality. It really gives a kind of beautiful nobility to the heart. And this is something which we can be genuinely proud of, uh, our aspiration towards compassion. Perhaps on another level too, it dissolves uh, the kind of prison of self-interest that is our typical uh, sort of dwelling place. And this, again, is something that we're ambivalent about. So we, again, oftentimes, you know, spiritual practitioners feel the constriction of the self and that as a prison and, and yearn to be free, and yet 
well, maybe not so fast. It's uh, it's a little bit um, can be a little bit disorienting, or we're we're actually not sure how much we want to let go of the self-interest. But through through the compassion practice, it's moving that way through the insights that come from the compassion practice and the metta, through the kind of sense of oneness that sometimes opens up there. And slowly over time, I, I really think we we begin to sense that um, we, we cannot be fulfilled. Uh, we cannot actually find a, a really deep happiness in life if. Um, if we are self-centered, like from the center of self to go out in the world searching for happiness is, is doomed to failure, is doomed to limitation, doomed to actually create suffering. And as these practices mature, um, I think, I, think I, I, I would say that there comes a point for people when, when one just says, actually, you know, I'm, I'm just not interested in living a life with self at the center anymore. It's just something has just either gradually or suddenly just snapped. And that kind of uh, life with self at the center is, is no longer that interesting. But all, all this happens gradually, but there's a, a deeper and deeper commitment to, to uh, love and to compassion. And as I think John said in uh, maybe the opening talk, you know, the Dalai Lama, someone with tremendous years of, of practice and commitment says, my religion is kindness. It's just moved to that kind of place. So, for the Buddha, um, one of the really important things in, in, his, um, in his own search, in his own practice, and also what he tried to encourage others, was asking the right questions of, of ourselves, of life, of practice. So, uh, we may think, okay, compassion, I, I, all right, I see it's a good idea. How, how does it develop in my life? Uh, so this, this asking the questions, how can I develop compassion? How, how does the heart open more in compassion? So asking these questions, really, really important in life. Um, there's, a, there's a story about Gertrude Stein, the, the writer, and she, I know very little about her, but... Um, she was on her deathbed, in and out of a coma, and uh, surrounded by a sort of group of uh, uh, acolytes, is that the word? Um, devotees, almost. And uh, she seemed to sort of be slipping into this coma and, and sort of entering the other realms or whatever, and then sort of coming back to this realm a little bit, and in and out like this over a, a few days. and. At one point, uh, one of her little entourage, uh, whose name I think was Nancy something, uh, said, Gertrude, Gertrude, what's the answer? Because it seemed like she was going to some place. <laughs> <laughs> and so when she sort of emerged from her coma-esque uh, state, <laughs> she said, Nancy, what's the question? <laughs> <laughs> Which I think... <laughs> Well, she was an odd fish anyway, but uh, in a way there was some real wisdom in that because sometimes we have the sense of wanting answers, wanting answers in life, and yet we're not asking very specific questions. And to, to, if you look back on the Buddha search, something he was extremely skillful at was asking really particular questions of himself and of others. And when he got asked questions, 
after his awakening, when he got asked questions that he felt actually weren't really leading anywhere, he would, uh, well, he, he wouldn't hesitate to tell the person that <laughs> 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 it wasn't the greatest question. Maybe they should, you know, rethink their question, or or sometimes he would just ignore it. <laughs> so, questioning is very important in in our practice, and of course, we're dealing very much with the techniques here and. Most, mostly the technique that we're working with is the phrases, and that's fine, that's one option, but there are many techniques, you know, if we just talk in, in terms of techniques, many techniques for compassion. There's Tonglen, some of you will be familiar with from the Tibetan tradition. Uh, there's the taking of uh, a Bodhisattva, uh, so a little Kitashvara or Kuan Yin, Tara, Jesus, whatever it is, and just opening to that energy, opening to that energy, channeling that energy. Beautiful way of practicing. Um, there is the um, use of insight, what I talked about a little bit the other day, using the insight to just, in all kinds of different ways, to open up the compassion. But uh, the development of compassion in our life is, is of course, not just a formal thing. And, and you have to ask, okay, I'm beginning to understand the techniques, this is working for me, what, what else in my life, so that it can really be um, a deep current in our lives? What the question, what is it that nurtures compassion? What is it that allows it to grow in the heart? It's a hugely important question for our life. So we may look, uh, and the first thing, uh, the first thing, uh, the sort of basis in a way, is just a willingness to open, uh, open to and to touch suffering. It's that simple, that if we're out of contact, if we're not looking, if we're disconnected from the suffering in the world, there's no way compassion is going to arise, either for ourselves or for others. So it has this willingness to come close, to be intimate, to witness, to see, to feel. Uh, and that much. And it, that much may be obvious to people who've been practicing for a while, but I, I don't think that if we sort of walk down... Newton Abbott, uh, High Street, and took a survey and, and asked people, do you think it's a really good idea to open and, and really experience intimately the suffering in the world, <laughs> your own or others? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what, uh, this, you know, what the survey... So it's not obvious. <laughs> um, and we need, even if we've been in these kind of circles, we need reminding. That's the first... With that, that's the... Uh, that the thing without which compassion cannot arise, that willingness to come close and to touch. And in so doing, in our practice, we begin to develop a confidence that we actually can open to suffering. We can uh, be intimate with pain. We can look it in the face. And we can be okay. There's a confidence that comes into the heart. And that's huge. That's really huge. Because probably the reason that... Uh, um, I keep knocking Newton now, but we could say it. <laughs> it's probably the same. I don't have the same topness. Um, wherever <laughs> uh, it, yeah, the oh, I lost my track of thought. Anyway, we develop <laughs> we develop a confidence by doing this, which is which is huge because that's the one thing that would be lacking, I think, uh, without without that practice. So this willingness. Insight. Insight meaning, again, how, does, how is it that human beings kind of uh, create or co-create suffering? What are we doing that creates unnecessary suffering in the world for ourselves and for others? That's what insight is. It's 
understanding how suffering is created, understanding it so deeply that it, we don't do it anymore. When there's that insight, when there's an understanding of suffering, we, compassion comes automatically because we look around us and inside us and we just see it's going on all the time through clinging, through ignorance, through misunderstanding. And with that insight comes compassion. As the deepening of the understanding of anatta, of this not-self, the emptiness of self, as that deepens, compassion is natural. Less to protect, less barriers between you and me, less barriers between me and the world. Natural sense of non-separation. And the compassion is organic in that, organic. Also, the importance of, uh, you know, the Buddha talks a lot about association with the wise in order to, to cultivate wisdom, like as well as practice, just hanging out with people who are wise, talking with them, being with them, seeing how they live. I would add to that uh, association with the compassionate, like really spending time with people who, who are really devoted uh, to compassion, to service in the world. Uh, it it kind of has a way of rubbing off. So willingness to open, insight, anatta, uh, action. Um, I didn't say that one yet. Action, the thing. Uh, actually doing stuff, because we meditate and hopefully uh, we're transforming our intentions. We're transforming our hearts so that actually, spontaneously, it wants to pour out into the world. It wants to pour its love out into the world. It wants to hold the suffering. We're transforming the heart gradually, uh, reconditioning the heart at very deep levels. Um, and so the, the movement is from inner to outer, but not to underestimate the movement from outer to inner. We act in the world uh, out of service, even when we're not feeling like it. We do something, we put ourselves in situations, and there's all kinds of opportunities in the world to, uh, to spend some time uh, devoted to service, to compassion. And that somehow transforms the inner as well. So action and association. And the last one, uh, right now at least, is um, some degree of uh, happiness, I would say, or well-being, or joy, or something like that. Uh, whatever, whatever word is, is okay for you. That when we feel a certain amount of buoyancy, uh, it's much easier for the heart to move out, to be um, not preoccupied with self, not burdened by life. And that happiness is a kind of foundation, uh, not only for the samadhi, as I said, but also for, for um, compassion. So I have a friend, I think I mentioned her the other day, and, and she, she really has an extraordinary capacity for compassion. It's just one of these people who has a natural, uh, huge heart. And she has, you know, for all kinds of complicated reasons, and uh, she has a, a history of suffering from periods of depression. And um, when she's in that more uh, folded-in place, uh, her heart just closes down. And she's, I think, she wants to be available, but she actually she can't. She just doesn't have that, uh, those inner resources. So taking care of our happiness, our, our well-being, is actually hugely important. So we must ask, what nurtures compassion? The flip side of the same question, what actually blocks it? What's not helpful? 
what's kind of getting in the way a little bit. And so, uh, remembering with uh, metta, we talked about the near enemies of metta, the near enemy uh, being attached love. Compassion has uh, four near enemies, uh, four things, four qualities that arise as, as human beings. They will arise for us. They can look like compassion. They can be mistaken for compassion, but they're not. They're kind of uh, diversions. And again, not that they're wrong or that we want to judge them or that they shouldn't arise and we expect them not to arise. They're actually part of having a human heart, part of our humanity, part of the learning process. So really not to judge these when they arrive, arise or um, shun them or anything. Actually to, to look into what the differences are. So they are, I'll go through them in a bit more detail, fear, anger, pity and grief. Fear, anger, pity, grief. So fear. Uh, and oftentimes uh, I've come across people practicing compassion and they're, they're kind of have this relationship of fear to it. F again, fear of the suffering that they will open to and that it will be burdensome or that they will be uh, you know, drowning in sadness and drowning in grief. Uh, we fear our own suffering. You know, this is very, uh, very clear to us. There's emotional pain that we have or physical pain and we have a response of fear to it. But that fear only compounds the suffering, it only adds to it. And we need to be very clear about this. Fear is actually not something very helpful uh, in relationship to our own suffering, for the most part. Uh, and then in relationship to the, to the suffering of the world, uh, we can feel like little old me is supposed to open up to the I don't know, maybe infinite suffering uh, of the world, the infinite suffering of beings. And this little sense of self can feel overwhelmed. So, there's fear, there's anger, and this is, uh, this is quite common, it's quite a seductive one, the way that we can see suffering in the world and our compassion, what might be compassion, actually gets diverted into a kind of righteous indignation or anger at what's going on. It's extremely common. We blame, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for you, this wouldn't happen. Or we judge others that we see to be causing suffering in the world. Or we judge our own suffering. I shouldn't be suffering. I'm stupid. I'm so stupid. Meditating for, you know, weeks or whatever, and I'm still suffering. <laughs> Um, but this is really important to wisdom and the wisdom in compassion understands uh, the causes and the conditions that give rise to suffering understands what the Buddha would call the dependent origination of suffering so um, I think I mentioned it uh, sometime I did a, a couple of months uh, Metta and Compassion with people uh, a while ago and uh, when I got to the difficult category, I had um, three, three people in the difficult category. And two of them were these two American politicians. And, um, and it was quite challenging. <laughs> it was quite challenging. And just, uh, 
seeing the blame, the judgment, etc. come out, the, the righteous anger, but as I practice with it, actually beginning to take a little bit of a broader view and seeing that, okay, this particular politician was brought up uh, in a certain environment. He had a certain family. I mean, his father, you know, it's, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> it kind of got... How could, you know, where he was sent to school, all of it. There's no, not no way, but it would be extremely um, a tall order to ask him, having grown up in that environment, that family, that education system, the whole works, to somehow... Um, extricate himself from all that and have a whole different way of seeing the world. Uh, that's not to condone what's, you know, some of the stuff that's going on, but um, it just, this is what I'm saying about dependent origination causes conditions. Actually seeing, we tend to blame selves and we don't see the bigger picture. Again, this web of causes and conditions that comes, uh, that comes together and uh, makes someone see something a certain way, someone do something a certain way, someone say something. So there's that. There's understanding the causes and conditions of dependent origin. It's really, really important when we when we see uh, w when we're trying to be compassionate to those who are actually causing suffering in the world. The other part is also reflection on karma. And this is not a kind of revenge thing. It's actually seeing that um, whoever it is that seems like they're causing suffering, they're actually causing suffering for themselves. And I'm not talking about future lives and all, all that stuff. In this life, I may not seem, seem that way, but by, um, by cultivating greed, by cultivating insensitivity, by cultivating self-centeredness, self-preoccupation, uh, they are actually contracting their heart. There's there's a very real limit to how much a heart caught up in all of that, acting from all of that, there's a very real limit to the amount of uh, true peace, true well-being, true joy that that heart can, can open to, um, despite what, what else comes their way. Um, this isn't you know, when we talk about karma, it's not a, a revenge, uh, you know, we don't get behind it because, yeah, they're going to get it. <laughs> uh, it's really, then can we open, can we use that as a compassion, as a, as a, as a doorway to compassion? Um, the last two, two years that I lived in the States, I lived in this, uh, I, I moved out of the sort of inner city thing to, to a bit, I wanted a bit more greenery around me, so I moved to the suburb. And it turned out after I got there that it was it was really nice actually. And uh, but it turned out to kind of be a sort of a, a, in the suburb of the American dream, so to speak. And, and so a lot of people had swimming pools, and uh, and I, I just uh, I didn't have swimming pools. <laughs> uh, a lot of people had swimming pools and cars, and this. and a lot of the cars there were these SUVs, so uh, sports utility because you know these big kind of. Do you know what I mean when I say it? Yeah, yeah. yeah four-wheel drive, exactly. At that time in America, there was no emissions. Uh, they, they could have all kinds of pollutants in their exhaust, and there was no there was no law against it. And there were also, of course, gas guzzlers, etc. like that. And I had been quite involved with different environmental projects and movements and stuff. 
And so I would walk around my otherwise very nice neighborhood and enjoying the greenery and everything, but actually fuming <laughs> uh, at seeing all, all these SUVs and really, really getting quite bothered by it. And uh, I went to my teacher and I explained what was going on. And she said, um, my teacher, and she said, uh, give them, send them meta, send them meta. And, and then she said, and not only that, wish them more SUVs. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> So I, I, I left, and um, I could do the first part. I did the meta, but I, I could not wish them more. It just seemed really not, not uh, helpful. <laughs> but what I think happened, something at a certain point shifted. Maybe, maybe it was from the meta, and I, I began to see most of these people were very nice. They were very... Uh, they were caring, considerate, friendly, etc. They just did not understand. They didn't understand. Uh, they just didn't see. It, they they were uninformed. They just didn't make the connection. Uh, they were ignorant. One one use of the word ignorant. I ignorant. But that, I think, what happened with the meta softening it was seeing that instead of them being ignorant, it's actually saying ignorance does not belong to anyone. Uh, many instances when. I was ignorant. I am ignorant, of course. And it's like ignorance is part of the human condition. And instead of being um, belonging to them, it was just like there is ignorance and it doesn't belong to self. And somehow in that there was a real, um, there was the ability to be, to be more soft with it. And uh, then the compassion could arise. So again, not throw, and I still thought the, you know, the SUVs were really uh, a huge shame, you know. And then, of course, you know, September the 11th happened, and uh, people not really even seeing the connection between the oil and the Gulf and all that stuff. But anyway, um, there's a difference. I don't know if this corresponds to to dictionary uh, definitions, but what I would call judgment and discernment. And the Buddha talks a lot about discernment. Discernment meaning what is it that's leading towards suffering? What is it that's leading towards the well-being of self and other? To me. Uh, you know, American, well, the world now, it's the same in London, but uh, have all those SUVs is actually not leading to freedom from suffering. It's not, it's not helpful. Uh, judgment would be when the self has uh, wrapped itself around that discernment and it says, you or I, I'm different, you're doing this. Self is wrapped around the discernment. And, and, and it's, it's come to be a thing about self rather than just a thing about discerning what leads to suffering, what doesn't. So there can be discernment and still compassion, and that's really, uh, that's really important. And so the third thing with um, when there's anger, uh, understanding the causes and conditions, the dependent origination, seeing that ignorance doesn't belong to self, Ignorance is just ignorance. Third thing, what the Buddha calls, uh, sounds a little strange, remaining precipient of um, of the beautiful. Remaining percipient of the beautiful, which means, basically, when we see uh, difficult stuff going on or someone um, uh, acting to create suffering, we're drawn into that and that becomes all we see. I wandered around my otherwise very nice neighborhood. All I saw was SUVs. <laughs> Uh, the mind gets sucked into that kind of perception. Remain percipient means find something mm -hmm. 
in this person that's actually noble, lovely, uh, of good intention, something, uh, to balance the um, lopsidedness of the view. Okay, so there's fear, there's anger. Um, oh, and actually, one more thing. When we are, when the compassion has gone off into righteous anger, or, or we feel that kind of anger coming, it's actually painful for us. And so sometimes this might happen in the course of your practice, if you're giving uh, compassion to the difficult person. Uh, to take a moment and just give the compassion to oneself, recognizing that there's some pain there. If I'm involved in judgment, if I'm involved in blame, in anger, and all that, my heart is burning. Uh, my heart is contracted and painful. Just to take a moment and turn around and feel that pain and touch it with compassion to oneself, and then to go out again. So, it's important that aversion doesn't come into the compassion uh, too much. It's not that and compassion wants to alleviate suffering, but it's not that it wants to push it away out of aversion, and there really is a difference, and to feel in, in, in our practice, in our lives, the difference between those two. Uh, we're not push, compassion is not pushing away out of aversion, rather it wants to... Um, it, it's almost compassion holds suffering, it holds suffering, and then adds uh, healing and understanding. So it's something quite different. Okay, so there's fear, as these near enemies, fear, uh, anger, pity, pity. And again, this can be, this can look very similar, but you can feel it in the practice. You can actually feel it and, and see if you can play with it. Pity for others is when we're looking down at them. Oh, poor you, uh, down there, suffering, worldly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it creeps in, and sometimes in very subtle ways, you know, that's not the sort of suffering I get involved in. Uh, sometimes it's barely a thought, but it's come, there's just a stance of kind of looking down. And, uh, you can see it also, interestingly, in ourselves, we, we can somehow self, we can get into self-pity, and that's quite common. Maybe it's when we're comparing our state of suffering with others, and we're sort of down. But to see that self-pity is something disempowering. There's not, compassion is something that's actually energizing and healing and um, moves towards the alleviation of suffering. Self-pity would just keep it cycling. It's disempowering. It actually keeps suffering there. Compassion to self and other is empowering and uh, not debilitating. So in the practice you can see, when has pity crept in, and is there some way I can uh, equalize things again? All the near enemies, what they have in common is that there's too much self-view in the mix at that time, whether it's anger or fear or pity, whatever. There's too much self, either myself or yourself, their self. Too much selfing is going on. Uh, there's too much of that in the picture. Can we remedy that by beginning to see the commonality? See the commonality of suffering, of ignorance, of whatever it is. And so this happens as, as we're meditating, sometimes we just need to make a little shift. See what's common, and, and it can help. So 
So suffering is suffering, it's something that we all have, and delusion is delusion, and it's something that we all have. Last one is a little bit more complicated, grief. Um, if there's too much grief comes into the compassion practice, and it's, it's uh, quite common, uh, we can feel overwhelmed, we can really feel tired and burdened and uh, the, the practice can become tiring and debilitating. It's a little bit complicated because sometimes we touch on things and it's necessary to feel the grief and to kind of release grief. Um, however, maybe just to add, sometimes to look into how, how does grief sometimes spiral and kind of feed itself. So grief, even if it's a very real and necessary grief, has a way of, we actually feel quite tired afterwards. Even if it's very real, I need to release this. There's a kind of tiredness to it. That low physical energy can then actually um, set up the conditions for more grief. And it can just keep going like that because the physical energy has, has sunk. So just something to be aware of when we're working with grief. Uh, some of it may be really necessary. Sometimes it might just be spiralling in an unnecessary way. For the practice of compassion, we don't want to be too much over in the grief all the time. So some is going to be inevitable, and it's, it's actually a beautiful thing that the heart is touched by that. But you want it to be um, balanced. And so that, that aspect of balance is, is uh, I did talk about it the other day, and I've just mentioned it again briefly because it's, it's really important. As we open to the suffering, there's the empathy, there's the, the trembling of the heart, the quivering of the heart, the, the sorrow that we feel at that suffering in the world, the sadness that we feel. But that's natural. If there's too much of that, we, we will get tired and feel burdened. If we emphasize that too much in practice, so we can be aware, as the practice is going on, of where the balance is. And you can just lean over a little bit more to feeling the energy that's more going out to heal, to soothe, to comfort. That has a kind of brightness to it. It has a kind of healing quality that's kind of touching ourselves and on its way out. And it will give them uh, the awareness, the heart, some buoyancy uh, and some sense of well-being and happiness. And, and, and it's really, really necessary. So that the practice of compassion can be really sustainable. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've done, you know, I'm exhausted now. Can we move on to the next Brahma heart? And it actually feels like one could just keep going with compassion because it actually feels very lovely. And one can keep leaning the mind into feeling that loveliness and that nourishment of that and feeling it in the body as well. This is really, really important. And it's not a fixed point of balance that we find, it's always going to be uh, moving. Uh, but to be, it's something that we can be responsive to. As the practice of compassion deepens, so we're, we're working with this balance and we're healing, we're sensitive to suffering and we're, and we're radiating out the healing. As it deepens, Sometimes th there's a possibility it kind of deepens to, in a way, a third aspect, not just the empathizing and the giving out, but a third aspect of what I would call um, spaciousness or equanimity comes in or a kind of holding comes in. 
Sometimes it can be there, there really is a sense of space opens up in the practice of compassion. And it's almost as if that space, the space of compassion, or the space of awareness, or just the space of the universe, whatever you want to call it, somehow feels like it effortlessly and organically holds whatever suffering arises. And, and the space feels like it's infinitely vast. And it's just there, just present. All the suffering that has arisen, that ever has arisen, all the suffering that ever will arisen, all the suffering that is, is accommodated in that space. And at, at this point, if, if the practice, and again, not to grasp any of this, but if the practice deepens to that level, it's kind of like the self has gone out of it at that point. It, doesn't, it no longer feels like I'm sitting here doing the compassion practice, I'm giving the compassion, the self is kind of cranking it and out comes the compassion. It's more like um, there's a sitting back and allowing the space uh, to, to hold the suffering effortlessly. And that too, of course, uh, takes away from the sense of burden, I mean radically takes away from the sense of burden that we have, or overwhelm or tire tiredness. It's not the self doing it, it's not even the self holding it. And we could say, you know, some people do say the true nature of the heart, the true nature of awareness, the true nature of the heart is infinitely vast. We can begin to get a sense of that sometimes. Or it can feel like it's actually a quality of the universe, it's, it's, it's somehow woven into the fabric of, of space, of the cosmos. It's, it's there. And sometimes people, you know, uh, want to talk then in the language of God. It makes complete sense. And, uh, and absolutely why not? It feels quite appropriate. Again, it's just words. But. Or in the language of the energy of a bodhisattva permeating the universe. The energy of, of Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion of Jesus or whatever, whatever. just permeating the universe. In the Christian tradition, they talk about the cosmic Christ. And uh, one Christian mystic, Julian of Norwich, says, uh, said, love is without beginning. Love is without beginning. And some, sometimes the practice can just, uh, it by itself, just open up to that uh, uh, other space. There's a possibility, again, not to grasp any of this. The other morning I talked uh, briefly about compassion to oneself and again just reflecting how common it is for us to feel well there's so much suffering in the world and I really don't suffer much compared to uh, you know if I open the newspaper I see what's going on you know wherever it is Sudan or wherever um, but it's hugely important uh, to, to give the compassion to oneself and it's not building ego um, I think, well, I'm giving, spending all this uh, time giving to myself, isn't that just pumping up my ego in some way? E ego gets pumped up through the wrong kind of attention uh, to oneself, actually through lack of self-love. When there's the lack of self-love, then the ego has to go out and make itself big in the world and make itself this or that. When there's metta and compassion for oneself, ego can just take its rightful place in the, in the scheme of things. And it's tremendously healing, uh, just that simplicity of the compassion practice to ourselves. 
how healing that is to bathe ourselves, our lives, our bodies, our minds in compassion. And then, as, as I mentioned briefly the other day, just to mention them briefly, possibilities uh, of other um, sort of more insight openings through compassion to oneself. When we do the compassion to oneself, and there's not a particularly strong suffering there, so not not when there's um, you know really a lot of uh, something difficult going on. It's just one's just kind of going about in one's usual humdrum meditative day. <laughs> and there's nothing particularly dramatic going on. And I'm in the here and now, giving compassion to myself, and I'm just not too absorbed in the feeling of compassion. So it's there, maybe, or just the phrases are there, or whatever. But there's a little bit more wideness to include what I see, and the sounds, and what I'm feeling emotionally, and the thoughts, and the body sensations. Just a little bit more wideness. There's a climate of compassion and some degree of samadhi, which may mean that phrases have got very sparse or not using the phrases or it's just one word or whatever. In that climate of compassion, with a little bit more broad awareness, it, it's like a lens of looking at the present moment, the present experience, through the lens of seeing suffering and the end of suffering in the moment. So we begin to see little sufferings, little ways that we're creating suffering. And organically, somehow, because of the compassion practice, we can just un it just unhooks. It's actually, we don't really need it. It's just organically unhooked. You may find this. You may find it. Uh, we become conscious of what we're clinging to in the moment. And it could be, oh, when's this walking period going to end? could be we feel ourselves, we actually feel ourselves, the consciousness, move out of the here and now. And we feel with it the, the kind of contraction and the subtle suffering of that in the climate of compassion, in the awareness, and it just, may you be free, free. And we realize where the freedom is. It's not from moving out of the here and now. And we let go of that impulse. Uh, or we may just realize the heart has closed down a bit. And uh, that's not where the freedom is. That's not where the healing is. And it's almost like we're not really thinking about it. It's just happening. And, and then uh, the heart can open again when we see it. There uh, can be a natural letting go there. Or we're aware of something we're grasping at. Um, or we're aware of how we're building things with the self-story. So there's actually some suffering, and then we're piling on uh, you know, decades of history and decades of future, and uh, they're not, you know, mo mother and father and grandparents and everything. It's all piled on there, and suddenly we've got this uh, huge... Uh, uh, you know, conglomerate of com of, uh, of suffering, and we're actually seeing that in the moment. Oh, this is what I'm doing, and I'm saying, may may you be free. And we see the freedom is actually just to let go of that, and just to be with the pain, which is probably considerably less than this whole uh, mass of, of built-up stuff. But it could be any level of insight. So you know, it could be, could be you know, one's uh, been working with emptiness a lot, and one sees, oh, I've just I've, I've moved back into making things seem really real. I'm out of the emptiness. Uh, or I'm giving things solidity and time. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. It can, this way of practicing can have a way of, um, I feel, kind of consolidating whatever insight uh, feels fresh. 
so we feel like um, you know you're on retreat and I'm understanding this or that about how suffering gets created and this way of practicing can actually just keep it being used keep it active keep it fresh consolidate it so that's one it's one possibility and you don't actually have to go anywhere near that if you don't feel like it uh, but just I'm just putting it out there and the second one that I mentioned the other day uh, was also compassion to self there's some some degree of calming that happens and in the calmness there's a little more sense of just inner space and begin to see who is this don't even ask who is this self I'm giving the compassion to and I see well I just see mind moments of experience a moment of an emotion a moment of a thought a moment of a sight a moment of a feeling a moment of whatever it is uh, suffering, a moment of ease that's all I can find mind moments I actually can't find anything else and so the compassion practice as it comes can begin to feel like I'm just actually giving compassion to these mind moments there's nothing else there it's just there's a mind moment and it's being touched with compassion and compassion so this really does begin to free up the sense of self uh, and, and free up the compassion with it. Less sense of self, more compassion. And then we can take that, that level of insight and actually do it the same with others. So I say there's nothing here but mind moments, nothing there but mind moments. And we give compassion to someone else, and again the calming we see, oh, just giving compassion to their mind moments. In a way they're ownerless mind moments, there's no owner, they're just mind moments arising can give a real uh, sense of softness and space and uh, emptiness too in the practice. This is bringing the anatta in. So like I said, these are just two options and really not to, not to worry if, if, they're not, uh, if you're not including them, they're just options, really not, not a big deal. Sometimes when we are suffering, uh, in fact a lot of the time, we tend to regard it as my suffering, my loneliness, my heartache, my tummy ache, my, uh, my confusion, um, my, my grief, my sadness, my loss, my, my. And we actually, although we know it intellectually, we actually lose sight in the moment that my suffering is actually not different than the suffering of others. It's really not different. So I remember being in a in a class in uh, of my teacher, and um, she, one of the exercises we had as a homework one week was was uh, whenever suffering comes up, especially in meditation, seeing if you can reflect for a moment, someone, somewhere, uh, is either going through this exact same thing right now, or or has, and actually bring that as a conscious reflection in into the being with the suffering. And uh, quite, quite a strong, can have quite a strong effect. <clears throat> when we begin to see the humanity of, of our, our suffering kind of is human suffering, uh, it can begin to soften and can begin to open and we can, some compassion for ourselves can begin to come in. So oftentimes with our own suffering we're actually adding to the suffering by uh, sort of adding an extra layer of isolation and we don't even realize that we're doing it. We're just contracted around my suffering and 
we don't realize the commonality and we've added that extra layer of isolation. opened up to all, all the categories uh, now, or you can take them in, in order or whatever you like, but sometimes when we're in the compassion practice we notice, uh, I'm giving compassion to this person, they actually don't seem to have much suffering in their life, and there's really not much there, and that's that's valid, and we don't need to uh, kind of imagine scenarios for them, or imagine that they're sitting on some you know repressed volcano of, of, uh, of suffering that needs to come up from their unconscious. You know, it may be the case, but... <laughs> uh, but it's also... It, the compassion practice doesn't need that. Uh, we all, When there's no obvious suffering, we can just bring to mind uh, a kind of sensitivity, a quietening, a sensitivity. Bring to mind that it's not easy being human. It's not easy just being alive. Uh, we, we share a kind of vulnerability. Um, we share uncertainty, we share the challenges of being alive. We don't need to create suffering for someone. Or, just to admit, I actually don't know what suffering you have in your life, what suffering you have had. I don't know what suffering is going on right now, maybe that I'm completely unaware of. I don't know what will befall you in the future. And it's that kind of, I don't know, but I know that being human, you, you, you need and are going to need compassion. And again, bringing in this um, commonality, this, this sense of oneness. So you can actually reflect in the practice, you know, we are one. We are one in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, at a very mystical level, certainly we're one. Um, but in, in the level that we are all vulnerable. We, we have bodies that are vulnerable to injury, uh, to sickness, to decay, aging, to death. To just to reflect that we share that, really bring it in in a conscious way as a way of kind of supporting the compassion, uh, seeing the commonality, seeing the oneness, and and yeah, we share death. Uh, we share, as I said, an uncertainty that uh, life really is uncertain, and I'm sure we all know people that. Uh, or maybe ourselves, that some news or something has happened and the life has been changed dramatically from one moment to the next. And we didn't know that was going to happen that morning. And this, this, is, this is what it is to be alive and to be in the field of the infinite web, in the field of dependent origination, that uh, we, we live in an uncertain world that can change and change dramatically suddenly. We're also one in that we share a kind of bewilderment with all of this. So what the Buddha calls avijja, uh, we don't actually fully, deeply, in our hearts, in ourselves, yet completely understand about suffering. What, how suffering arises, how we make suffering. And we share that until we're uh, completely awakened. We share that. Share that uh, misunderstanding of life, of suffering and also of what it is that really leads to happiness. So we can understand that intellectually, but actually at another level, maybe we don't, we're not really that clear about it or convinced of it. And so we can see that oneness and bring that reflection of oneness in and allow it to, to find its, uh, its outflow in the compassion practice.
So we need, as I said, to touch the suffering of life with compassion practice and also to see the commonality and see the oneness. And there's a, a beautiful poem that Anne always speaks about this. Some, some of you may know it. It's by a poet called uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. It's actually called Kindness, but I, I think that what she's really talking about is compassion. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. I just want to say one final thing about bringing emptiness of self into the compassion practice, another possibility. Sometimes when we talk about emptiness in the very word, it sounds like there's nothing there, or it sounds quite nihilistic or dry or, or whatever. Another kind of angle is almost to regard a person that is empty, another way of saying it is they are infinite. A person is infinite. The, na the, the nature of a person is infinite. So what do I mean? If we reflect on this body, can actually, uh, and the science tells us, it's like... Uh, all of us in this room share molecules that make up whatever it is, our nails and teeth and skin and, and all, all the complex functioning of the body. The molecules were actually all created uh, in the same supernova explosion of, of some star that exploded uh, a long time ago <laughs> and, and kind of drifted in this cloud to the Earth. We, those molecules were all in the same star at one point. And going back way further, uh, the, u the whole universe was kind of compressed into one, one little, uh, very, very small, <laughs> uh, you know, with the Big Bang. It was all literally one, one thing, one fabric. And we reflect in, in the present moment, we are breathing the same air just through the course of this talk. Uh, probably uh, we've all breathed uh, 
99.9% of the air molecules we have, have been in and out of each of us. That means there's very few air molecules in this room right now that have not <laughs> been in, every, in and out of every person. And uh, someone told me, right now, there's an... I, I nearly wanted the windows open. <laughs> <laughs> there's something like a 99.9% probability that your next breath contains air molecules from the dying breath of Jesus on the cross. Things like that, you know. So we, but we are in, uh, in a constant... The air molecules come in and they become our body. The oxygen goes into the bloodstream. And there's, we tend to see barriers and walls and discrete entities. When we look deeper, uh, w- th- there are no barriers. There, it's, it's a very fluid, amorphous, uh, non-separate uh, thing, this body. Food, uh, so Stephen uh, Batchelor has this example of eating a banana, and you're chewing the banana and then you swallow it. And bananas being very mushy, at what point does the banana become you? <laughs> and you know, when it's being absorbed and there's sort of mush in there, when, when does it kind of become you and when is it still the banana? Um, <laughs> it's actually really worth, it sounds funny, I know, but it's really worth <laughs> reflecting on this kind of stuff. <laughs> So the poet Walt Whitman uh, has this famous line, um, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. He wrote that in 1855. I don't know what the kind of current astrophysical knowledge at that point was, but I don't think they knew about supernovas and, and that kind of thing. There's some kind of poetic, mystical insight that he was having. It's just this, this, is, this actually is uh, one system in one way. So, and, and Thich Nhat Hanh speaks a lot about this kind of way of seeing in, in his teaching. There's another level, though. The oneness of the mind, uh, the non-separateness of the mind. Minds have perceptions. So right now, uh, you are there's colour, light, you're seeing, these forms, whatever, there's a sound, uh, there's the perception right now. Uh, and then there's body sensation, there's all of that, or, or inner perceptions. No perception, no mind. They go together. To have a mind, you need to have a perception. If there's no world, there's no perception and no mind. The mind is in it inextricably linked up with what it perceives, which is the universe. Mind is not separate from the world. It feels separate. Self feels separate from others, from the world, from the universe. Mind feels separate. This this is the, the great delusion. Not separate. Uh, so all of this at first... Um, you know, it can sound like, well, that's, that's, a, that's, that's you know, a nice, cute, intellectual idea. Maybe the next time I find myself at a cocktail party with nothing to say, <laughs> I'll sort of strike up that as a conversation. <laughs> and then watch the people wander away. No, um, <laughs> uh, it's really not, it's not, it's not supposed to be just an intellectual idea. To begin actually inclining the mind towards that kind of reflection actually can begin to come into the practice on a very real level and begin breaking the barriers. So say emptiness, another way of saying, em- you know, um, maybe it's someone's phrase or I don't know who, but uh, emptiness is fullness. There's a way that this being, these beings, 
you cannot separate them, mind or body, from the whole rest of the universe. There is no real place where it, it breaks and cuts off. Emptiness is fullness. We are not separate. Uh, goes even beyond interconnectedness as a way that things are just interpenetrating, and we really go deep into this. Interpenetrating, beyond interconnected, completely interpenetrating. Mind and the world are interpenetrating. So, over time, we can bring these kind of reflections in. It, it, it comes into the practice, but it's a practice to reflect this way. But the outcome, uh, except social ostracization, is um, is, uh, is love and compassion. It, it, it uh, looking this way, beginning to reflect this way, uh, opens the heart to love and compassion. stop there. Um, so we, we have some time before lunch, uh, so quite a lot. Uh, are there any questions about either what I've said or what's been said over the days or about the practice uh, at all? Martin. I found what, what you were saying about the, the enemies of compassion the near enemies, yeah. Mm. Um, and I was sort of reflecting that, in a sense, the sort of enemies of compassion are more problematic when one's working, one's giving compassion to oneself uh -huh. rather than to, you know, someone else or the universe. Or yeah, yeah. Because in a sense, there's more, there's more attachment, mm -hmm. you know, to the, to what comes up. Mm -hmm. like. mm -hmm. And I was wondering if we could just perhaps explore that a little bit more, because in a sense I see the value in, in giving compassion to myself, mm -hmm. and but the possibility of getting sort of sort of then caught up, yeah. if you like, yeah. in in the in grief or yeah. or sadness mm -hmm. or or whatever yes. when when things are seen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's true. I, I think that would be quite a common pattern to actually get more caught up inside, but not everyone. People are different in their patterns. So mm. Some people get more caught up with, you know, everyone else is wrong and so I'm okay. Um, mm. uh, so, this this is important. One of, firstly, I, I like to encourage people to do quite a lot of compassion to themselves because of yeah. the healing involved, but also because it really does open up as a very deep avenue of insight as well into one's own particular patterns and how one gets caught. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, so yeah, by all means, spend a lot of time on compassion to yourself if you feel drawn that way. There's what, going back to what I was saying about this balance between empathizing and the sort of healing or, or the, the kind of feeling the well-being going out. Yeah. If one's taking care of that balance, one will also take care of the samadhi involved. And because you're tuning into what's nice, it will kind of, there'll be a kind of well, loveliness to what's going on in some quiet way. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a settledness there. In that settledness, part of the uh, part of the result of the samadhi will be less tendency to create problems. That's that's what goes with samadhi. But also, when there are problems, to see them more clearly and more spaciously. Yeah. So, if you're practicing compassion with the right kind of balance, it's good. You're actually opening up to the kind of things you you would do in your life anyway. Yeah. But seeing them more spaciously, more clearly, because they're they're less. And then, as I said, with the near enemies, not to think they shouldn't come up. Actually, 
they do come up, they will come up, it's, it's human, and if we can just uh, include that as part of the practice, this is very much in the field of what developing compassion is, actually looking at what's not quite compassion and being willing to discern the difference and practice with it. Mm-hmm. So it's not, they're not problems to just kind of shoo out the door uh, too quickly, necessarily. Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the things that um, keeping that balance as well seems more difficult than working with oneself. Uh-huh. Okay. That's that was yeah. one of the things yeah. that, that I was including in that question. Okay. And so in a sense there's, there's also the issue of, of if one has got caught, you know, what is what you know, what would you recommend um, a way, you know, to move to perhaps giving compassion to others or to or maybe work in a more open way? Mm-hmm. Or what would you uh, anything, really. Sometimes you can just shift the near enemy, like you notice... Um, uh, what would it be? Th- say you're blaming yourself for some suffering that arises. Yeah. Um, then uh, actually seeing, taking a moment in the practice to reflect, uh, it wasn't self's fault. It was all the conditions and the past conditioning and the present and the situation, outer and inner, that actually led or are leading to what's happening. Mm, mm. And just taking a moment to reflect that can actually soften it, and then you can, in that softening, take up the compassion again. Yeah. So that might be one possibility. Uh, sometimes it's skillful to actually just go and work with someone else for a while and then come back. Yeah. Sometimes you might want to open up the practice, as I, as I know you do, and just open that and get that kind of letting go there and then come back. Um, if you can stay within the practice, within the if you decided I'm, I'm doing a regular compassion practice, I'm within that, and you can just kind of move to a sense of seeing the causes and conditions a bit more wider, and then the softening, and then coming back, that might be preferable. Mm. But they're all valid. Mm. They're all valid. And there's certainly things to work with, Absolutely. I mean, the near enemies, they will come up, and they are to be worked with, to be seen, to be understood, to be worked with. And it's, mm. as I said, it's part of being human. Again, um, it's not that we find kind of one static place with all this, and it's like, okay, sort it out my compassion and my equanimity, it's all, it's all kind of fixed there. It's more that the whole thing is going to be shifting. So in our practice it's going to be shifting, and in the world it's going to be shifting. So sometimes we decide to, we want to do something to help, to be of service, and, and we're... Oh, there is attachment there, and sometimes we're aware of the attachment, sometimes not, but 
I, I would say don't not act just because there's attachment there. It's more like over, you know, probably years of practice, one, uh, one learns to practice with there being attachment there and kind of softening the attachment, going back and forth of softening the attachment but still working or whatever. So the presence of attachment, it shouldn't hinder one from acting. One, one acts anyway and then the, the, the attachment is kind of in one's field of practice at that point. Um, it might be that then the one's acting and it moves between quite attached and 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 then having to be quiet and regain and find less attachment. And even in the less attachment, uh, one can say, well, I want to do something to help. Uh, less attachment doesn't necessarily mean indifference. So there's there's also that that might come up. It's actually moving between attachment and indifference can be. Um, all, all of this is going to happen and in a way it's just like saying okay, I'm going to act I'm gonna, I know it's all going to come up and I'm going to practice with it as it comes up at a very deep level I actually feel that it is possible to act in the world to want to help uh, to help suffering realizing that it's all completely empty there is no me doing it there is no person receiving it there is no action, there's not even any suffering in, in a real sense, like it's all completely empty, and yet what should come out of seeing that emptiness is is the desire to act it seems paradoxical but in terms of one's practice, it, it will move and then it's, it's a question of practicing practicing with that Yeah, I think I'm more concerned about keeping the awareness in the action rather than, you know have to deal with it sitting on the cushion and yeah, yeah. But it's but you Yeah, I'm not sure. Is there a specific situation that you're thinking of? just came into mind. Okay, what was it? The biggest hindrance is the self. Or the sense of the self doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what happens with these practices, they get, you know, and sometimes a lot, you know, stuff that I've said today can just sound completely abstract, you know, no self and this and uh, no boundaries and everything. I think what happens is after a while it becomes something that's much more workable in in a moment uh, in as we're moving through action. And more and more real, uh, but I, I don't know. That takes practice. Takes practice. Is it a particular? I mean, you don't have to say what it is, but is it a particular, uh, particular um, situation you're thinking of? Um, no, it's it's a many many situations. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, every time I've tried to get more mm. social justice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was like my story of the the SUV thing. It's like yeah, it, it was it was coming up, but really, really trying to challenge it, like saying it's not okay that I'm walking around like this, you know, with bad feeling and ill will and all that. It's just not okay. The SUVs are still there. Uh, they are, but you know, it's it's also like. Um, First of all, I don't know what the emissions law on SUVs now are in America, I don't know, but uh, I 
I think one can come to a point in practice where it just feels like you know some of the stuff that we care about and we move towards changing is actually not going to change in the world. And so, for instance, like climate change, who knows what's going to happen with that? But still, to to be in the world with compassion, acting out of compassion, is is the best way to live. There's just there's no doubt about it. And uh, and we don't know what will happen because this is where the equanimity comes in. We actually are not completely in control of what will happen. It's uh, there's two. It's an infinite again, an infinite web of conditions. Uh, it's not, it's not just in our in our control. Somehow, as compassion deepens, equanimity comes more and more into practice. Um, but even if something's not going to change, it's still that being in the world, uh, viewing the world, and acting out of a place of compassion is just the best way to, to be. There's no there's, there's nothing that comes close to it. We can be angry, or we can be indifferent, or we can be selfish, or whatever. But uh, compassion is the best. And we don't know what will happen out of that. We'll be speaking more about equanimity as, as a, as later in the retreat, but uh, it's it's a hard one. It is a hard one. I, I really feel like we have to challenge it. Though. We have to in in the moment. We have to challenge it. Find it. Okay. I have a question. Um, <coughs> In the in the sessions, I'm uh, uh, mixing quite a lot of meta and compassion. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, just what I understand is that compassion is born from meta. Yeah. It's just meta uh, meeting suffering. Mm -hmm. So what I'm uh, I'm I feel I need to connect with meta uh -huh. before. Yeah before being able to be yeah. in the compassion space. Mm -hmm. So uh, <coughs> in the in the sessions I, I there's quite a lot of time with meta before going to compassion. Okay. Yeah. So is that right? What what happens when you don't do that? Mm. Yeah, it just feels difficult to To really connect with mm. the with the feeling of of compassion. Okay. Um, I mean, there's a couple of ways. It's it's fine. You know, it's fine. I, I think I would rather that you you can do more straight compassion, just so that you could be really clear about what the difference is. But it, it's fine if that goes on. I mean, you might want to <coughs> just be aware of someone suffering and kind of just sit with that and see what the response is and see what comes uh, can be really skillful. Or, um, uh, in the context of compassion, you're actually not getting so sucked in immediately to where the really strong suffering is. So <coughs> you're thinking of the friend or the benefactor, whatever it is, and you're just aware of their being and the fact that they're human and everything. And there's a quality of, it's almost like meta, but you're just aware that life has suffering in it too and then you're giving it, and then you can turn a bit more and include what might be more obvious suffering. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. <coughs> but it's not too much of a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, if you can kind of whittle down the time spent on on metan, make, make it more compassion, that would also be good. Like just 
get more and more used to the feeling of compassion so that you can uh, cue into that more readily. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Okay. Is that your question? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. With the um, the categories, mm. um, <coughs> could could you start to sort of swap and change now, or is it more useful to just stay day by day? Oh no, the, um, um, uh, you can swap and change as you like. I just, ju- I mean, I think John um, said yesterday, hopefully that uh, you've got this much time to kind of work through the categories. Did he say that? As, as you spoke, I wasn't quite no. sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 who are we working with today? Um, ah, okay, sorry. I, maybe there was a misunderstanding then. I, okay, okay. Um, it's a bit unclear. You sort of said both. Okay. I, my understanding was that um, from yesterday, uh, the sort of message was, okay, um, until... On Sunday morning, we're going to start another practice. So between yesterday and Sunday, you can go through all the categories in any at any pace or order or, or whatever that you like. I and mean, probably the gen- the usual order is better, but you can go through them. You know. Would there be anything lost from at times if it feels right opening out to all beings? Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. No, go for it if that feels more appropriate. And and uh, sometimes the samadhi does feel better. It feels there's more quality there with just openness and all beings and do that but do come back to particular beings as well um, yeah so is that is that clear yeah yeah is that okay man yeah, yeah. Um, overlapping in with the categories uh, like for instance my person I've been using as difficult in the meta practice is was the first to come to mind of uh, the person who's obviously suffering uh-huh. yeah. and, uh, and things like this. Yeah, that's fine. Um, again, you want to take care of making the practice easy. Right. Because they're not, so if it feels like, well, this is just, I'm not really connecting with anything here, I'm just... Well, that's, that's why I'm asking, because that's what I've been doing is overlapping and swapping. So okay. Stay longer in that space. Or okay, that's fine. If it if it feels helpful, it's it's fine. You know, it's just um, you know changing, doing that, and then finding like, well, this is really hard. What well, this is not really happening. So, well, then I would say that's not the wisest choice. Okay. So again, if you go to all beings in the in the next few days, um, you can just one of the ways. Well, there are always ways. I said, but um, you can. Uh, just be in a space of compassion, just uh, and random images of beings or you know what you might have seen on the news or newspaper or whatever, or beings that you know or don't know, you might just come in and go and come and go. But the space is quite important, so just a space uh, radiating compassion. Sometimes it can feel like you're just resting in that space and there's very little doing, very little phrases, it's just a sort of um, not doing much, it's just a space of compassion that can be really helpful. 
sometimes you can just really again to emphasize to to be as much as possible in the body with it so it's like uh, almost like the body becomes compassion it's just radiating out compassion you've become compassion uh, it can happen sometimes yeah Bill uh, yeah, yeah about swapping um, the categories I have the categories I use for practicing metta um, aren't um, they might not be as suitable as other people I can imagine mm-hmm. for practicing compassion yeah because there's not enough suffering there? Yeah. yeah. Or, or it's, I, I sort of strained to imagine the commonalities and suffering. Right, okay. Well, there is um, yeah. a newspaper story in yes. the town of a very sad situation mm. that I could yeah. Yeah. work with. Yeah, so that's, that's a really important question. So <coughs> take maybe maybe two, two or three people in the very obvious suffering category, so that might include this newspaper story. Mm-hmm. But I would say you actually want to keep the others in, in the other categories because <coughs> what we're moving to is a kind of compassion that's universal in the sense that it doesn't actually just um, restrict itself to very dramatic, obvious suffering. It's actually something just, there's a sensitivity to, that develops that is just, just realising how subtle suffering can be, and that's also something that we have compassion for. So, it, and it might be a very beneficial spiritual stretch to actually stretch and just begin seeing this oneness, this commonality. That's actually a really good way of stretching the heart that way. Mm-hmm. But if you want to add maybe one or two more people to the obvious category, that's fine. Mm-hmm. When working with all beings, is it is it okay to exclude George Bush? Who? <laughs> um, <coughs> no, it's not okay. <laughs> no, it's not okay. Okay, any quick last ones before lunch? Okay, let's just have a, a minute of silence before lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.